Hello, this is the Soundcheck Hamilton's event industry podcast. I'm your host, Gary Taylor, and I'm here to get the inside scoop on the event industry, both here in Hamilton and New Zealand. I've been so looking forward to chatting to today's guest, Andrew Tuck, aka the owner, festival director, and boss man at one of New Zealand's most loved and iconic annual music festivals, the Jim Beam Homegrown. Notice I've got your sponsor in there, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you, and appreciate putting the sponsor's plug in. We will uh, flick you that money later and we'll be underway. Thanks, Andrew. Look, first of all, it's really great to see you, and I'd like to ask you, first of all, to give us a little bit of a history lesson in two parts. Firstly, what is your story? Where have you come from, and what have you done to this point? And secondly, tell us about Homegrown. Where did it all begin? And I think the fine city of Hamilton plays a part. Yeah, absolutely. I started with a place called Carlton Party High back in 1997. I got a job there as a sales rep and realised in my first month that the entire city was tied up with Hamilton Party High. So the way I went about it was I started to I started to sell myself in a way. I would basically put the gear in and then I'd work for them for free. So I did that across uh, some wine and food festivals. I did that across a few different gigs and I started to pick up more clients. The more clients I did, the more free work I did. So I ended up sort of working 70, 80, 90 hours a week and half of that free just so I could get the gear in there and keep my um, my sales levels up. Grew from there. Within nine months, I was the area manager for Auckland. And then within uh, 12 months of starting, I was national sales and event director for Carlton Party High based out of Auckland and, and servicing the country. And I continued to do the same thing. I kept on putting gear in and then giving my services for free. So after being there for three or four years, decided it was time to, to move on to another opportunity. However, all those people still wanted me to work for them, but now they started to pay me money. So um, from there, the rest is, is kind of history. I got employed and went from job to job to job around the country, and that's where the event, uh, the event side of things started. Could I just touch on something you mentioned there, Andrew? We're often approached by especially younger people looking for a break into this industry, this great industry we work in. We've often said, do stuff for free. Absolutely. 100%, uh, 100% back that. If you really want something, give a little bit of your own time up, give a little bit of yourself up, and see if it's something you really want to get into. And if it's something you want to get into and you're passionate about, then the opportunities will come up. And homegrown. Tell us about the origins, where it all began and where it is now. Homegrown began as the X Games. So back in 1999, it was one of the events that I uh, did for free. It was um, by the river and it was for 500 people. There was a little uh, skate ramp there and it was wakeboarding competition. From there it grew and it went to the Hillcrest Tavern and then it came here to Claudelands. And uh, it was in Claudelands for, uh, for three or four years and it grew and grew. We ended up bringing Tony Hawk over and it continued to grow and then Wellington approached us and said, look, what can we do to to bring it to Wellington? And at the time, their opportunity was for it to grow bigger and gave us really good support, Um, and that was sort of dwindling off in the the Waikato region financially. So we ended up going to to Wellington. We had a stage, which was a local stage, a New Zealand stage, as part of our our event, and that stage really went really, really well. I mean, the first year we did it uh, was at Claudelands here, and we played blind spot in front of our stage, in front of water barriers, and it was $500 for Blind Spot back then because um, they were fresh and new. And we realised that the New Zealand public loved it. And it started to transpire from there. Uh, we got asked to make the X Games part of the world circuit. But again, we kind of lost the ability to control how we wanted the event to be and the experience for the punter. And in 2006, Mark made the, the call to do we start going into New Zealand music. And we were told at the time that it would be best, it would last two years. And we're now 16 years on, and we've gone from 10,000 people in the waterfront to 25,000 people on the waterfront across 
six stages and, and 50 acts some years. So it really goes to show that New Zealand music was always there. It just hadn't been put on the stage to showcase that. You know, and in one of the reviews for Homegrown in 2023, Andrew, I read, despite there being an estimated 24,000 people, I never wait in line for a drink or a toilet for longer than five minutes. Security is tight, but not overbearing. If it all gets too much, you can easily duck out to Macca's for a burger or take a stroll down Oriental Parade. Another report post-festival reported a couple of must-haves at any festival are food and bathroom facilities. I'm pleased to report there were lots of food and drink options available at Homegrown, as well as an abundance of toilets. The portaloos were manned with crew maintaining and regularly sanitising the facilities. They were the cleanest bathrooms I have ever seen at a festival. Big ups to Homegrown for that. Also, the crew overall were awesome. Bartenders, security, cleaners and caterers were friendly and very attentive to people's needs. So I'm seeing in those comments, Andrew, a theme that tells me something about this festival that you care very much about, and it's the fan experience coming to your show. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you make this happen? Uh, Yeah, I think there's um, quite a few things that that go into that. I think the first thing is always treat people as you want to be treated. And what do I want as an experience at a festival for myself? What do my friends want? What do my children want? I've got a 19-year-old son that goes to gigs and that now. And how does he what what makes it good for him and what makes it not a good experience for him so over the years we've always had a a mantra that we treat everybody like a brother or sister Uh, that started right back in the x games in in 99 as we've gotten older we treat everybody like a like a son or daughter now and in a few years time we'll be treating everyone like the grandkids but i think that if you think about it from the point of view of what would you like how would you like to be treated and there's a few things that are really really simple the first one is that guys want a quick beer They want a cold beer and they want a fast beer. They don't want to stand in a queue for 30 minutes waiting for a beer. They want to have a beer. And girls, they never ever want to go to a dirty toilet. If you go to a dirty toilet um, with your partner, um, she's pretty much going to be leaving quite smartly um, because it's not something she likes. Uh, She she likes a clean toilet, he likes a quick drink. So if you put those two things together and you've got those those two things, you've already kicked off 50% of what you need to do. And then people don't go to gigs to stand in queues. They go to gigs to enjoy the gig. They go to the gig to, to have fun, to enjoy their day. And if you're spending 20% of your day standing in queues, then you're not enjoying that 20% of the festival. So by minimising those queues and bringing those right down, you're actually giving the person that's coming along the actual experience for the entire time, whether that be five hours or ten hours. They're getting that whole time to enjoy, as opposed to spending a lot of that time getting frustrated, uh, not being able to get what they want. Standing in a queue for a toilet is not pleasant for anyone. Um, so let's eliminate that and let them get down to what they're there for and what they paid their money for, which is a good time. So I would expect that at often big festivals, promoters understanding the huge costs involved in putting these events on would be looking ways to trim. So what you're saying is, this is additional toilets, this is additional labour, but you think it's well spent. Yeah, and it'll probably come up a few times today on picking, is that a lot of people get into the events industry to chase the money. And any time you chase money in any job, particularly in the events industry, you're going to end up tripping yourself up. It has to be, the focus has to be the event. The focus has to be the artists, there has to be the workers, and it has to be the the punters and the attendees. And if you can get that right, and you can make sure the focus is all on them, then the ripple effect is you will eventually be successful and make some money out of that. But if you put the money first right from the get-go and start to trim, start to trim back lines, queues, start to trim back toilets and create, start to create a bit of a cluster of issues, then 
the experience for the punter isn't good and they don't want to come back the following year. They'll, they'll go and try something else. Um, whereas with us, we've got a really good fan base of people that come back year after year. Uh, and every year I meet somebody that's either been there for 10 years or come for 12 years or been there for eight years and they just keep coming back because they love it. And I think that if you focus on those people and looking after those people, then that's the, um, that's the key. Yeah, so some people would argue that music festivals have become overly commercialised, sponsors and corporate interests taking precedence over the music and the community. How do you balance the need to generate revenue, as you say, the need to maintain that integrity and that authenticity of your festival? I think that it, it comes down to the fact that you need your sponsors and your partners for the revenue to create the festival. If you look at an event like Homegrown, the cost for us is about $4.5 million. All right, so that just doesn't come just from ticket holders. That needs to come from partners, from stakeholders, and that, that's the money that's then generated to create the festival. Now, you can go totally the other way and go, I can make more and more and more money from getting more partners on board, but then it just becomes a billboard, and you don't want it to just be billboard after billboard after billboard either. So there's a fine line between making sure that the local community uh, or the city you're in understands the benefits of what the event brings. Stakeholders understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish and then you as a promoter are always focusing on your on the experience. And if you look at the, uh, the relationships that we have, Red Bull for example we've had for 25 years, uh, Jim Beam now 12 years. Most of our uh, suppliers and most of our partners have been eight years plus and that's just by building relationships and making sure that every part of everybody that's involved is fed back into the same common goal. And if you can get that right, then the outcome is right. Okay, let's move on to one of the kind of, if you like, biggest talking points around festivals full stop. I mean, you say yourself that you've developed and implemented, some may say an unorthodox, yet proactive approach to the whole thing around drugs and intoxication. And let's talk drugs and alcohol. Some people argue that music festivals are a breeding ground for drug and alcohol abuse and promote a culture of excess. What measures do you take to ensure that, you know, the safety and well-being of your attendees? And do you think music festivals have a big responsibility to address these concerns? I think, let's break this down to a couple of things. I think firstly, drugs and alcohol are prevalent across all society whether you're at a bar, whether you're at home on a Friday night, uh, whether you're going out. People don't come to festivals to try drugs for the first time. They don't come to a festival to drink for the first time. That's already part of their society. It's already part of what they're doing in their lives. All we're doing is putting a bulk amount of people together. And, of course, with any society, whether it be Hamilton, Wellington, Christchurch, there's a percentage of people in every population that overdrink or take drugs. And I think all we're doing when we have a festival is we're just bringing that percentage all together in one place, which sometimes, uh, from a media perspective and from a public perspective, can look like it's a massive problem. But it's no different to a problem in any other city. We're just putting a small town together in one place, um, which is why that amplifies that. Mm. I I read in uh, one of your uh, previous events that you only had one person admitted to hospital and zero members of the audience arrested out of a crowd of 20,000 plus. I mean, these are numbers that most event and festival organisers dream about. How are the numbers this year? And you must be so proud of some of this data. Yeah, we're really proud of the data. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Treat everybody as you want to be treated. If you're an 18-year-old, uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do silly things. Um, if you're 25, you're still going to do stupid things. I often know a lot of 40-year-olds that do silly things. So the question is, is how do you want to be treated? And how do you want to treat that person? Now, we can grab that person, throw them out, you know, stick the line in the sand. 
but then if you kick out 200 people out of a festival of 20,000, where are those 200 people going? And generally they're going back into the city. Generally they're going to the surrounding suburbs. And if they're drinking and if they're taking drugs and they're causing issues, they're causing issues that we don't know where those issues are. Police don't know where those issues are. They're all over the place. So our motto has always been take those people and look after them. Get that person sobered up. Make sure that person's safe. Uh, Make sure that that lady isn't leaving on her own. Make sure that they've got their friends with them. Take them aside, we look after them, we get them back to where they need to be, we help them find their friends. If we need to, we bring mum or dad, if we bring the partner uh, or whoever we need to get hold of to make sure that they can either come and collect them or that they're reunited with their friends again. Because their friends obviously are their friends, so they look after them. And if you can do those things, and and it takes a lot more time, it takes a lot more resource, it's a lot easier to sit at a gate with, with 20 security guards and just cut people off from coming in through the day and just throw them out. But then what's that person's experience and is that person now going to be safe? And the last thing I'd ever want to do is to throw some people out and find that a girl's been sexually violated or there's been some sort of harm happened in the city due to something that we could have prevented. So again, treat everybody like a brother or sister or son or daughter. Take them on board, look after them, have a chat with them, explain to them that, hey, the preloading before you got here or the amount that you drunk over there isn't acceptable. Um, I need you to make some changes to to how you're going to do this so you can have a long day. At the end of the day, when you go to a festival that's 10 or 12 hours, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And and we all get excited about going to things, you know, and we we have a few drinks beforehand or we get there and we just get underway and and get ourselves going and excited. It's about finding that balance and getting people to realise that if you actually just take your time and enjoy your whole day, you'll have an enjoyable day. You're still going to have a great time, but you're never going to meet somebody you're never going to have that much fun when you've got spew down the front of your top or you can't remember anything so let's make sure that we find that balance and that's what we do we have people going around the entire festival the whole time having a chat talking to people really we call them a preemptive response team and their job is to pick up issues before they become issues so if i see somebody that's over there and it looks like that they might need some help let's get over there and have a chat to them oh no they're actually okay they're just hanging out having a bit of a rest they're fine But we do that for the entire day and we're always looking for people that potentially might need assistance and get in front of it instead of picking somebody up that's already pushed past that limit. I mean, there have been concerns, Andrew, about the impact of music festivals on local communities, particularly in terms of noise, if you like, and disruption. And let's face it, Wellington, your location, is very much central CBD. And with that, I guess there are a lot of people who live in the central city, apartment dwellers. How do you work with local residents and authorities to mitigate these issues and ensure that your festival is, you know, has a really positive impact on the community? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. For us, it's about getting everybody to be part of that that journey. So we talk very closely with, with the council, uh, Wellington Waterfront. They know what we're trying to achieve. We have good discussions with local business leaders, explain to them that the ability for us to come into the city and by sharing your city with us, the economic impact back into the city is huge. For the weekend that, that homegrown's on, it's anywhere between six and seven million. And once people in the community start to understand that that's a cash injection into their city, which then creates a money go-round. So that money goes round and round the city. So the girl that got extra hours working at Glassons and selling tops is able to go to Rebel Sports and buy a pair of shoes, actually, because she's got the extra money. The guy that's working at Repco or the guy that's working at Hallenstein's is getting more hours, so therefore the money keeps going around. And when you're a business owner, like a lot of people are, or in business like a lot of people are in Wellington, they understand the financial benefits to their city and that money going around their city. Um, And once they get that, they are more than happy to work in with that. At the same time, we've also got to make sure that everything we do is clean, tidy, 
respect the city and make sure that the event always looks the way the city wants to be represented which is at a top level. So we put a lot of time and effort into making sure that every fence line is straight, everything is just looking sharp, so that when you're walking down the waterfront and we take up a kilometre of the waterfront, the waterfront looks like it's beautiful. It looks like we're meant to be there. It looks like we're part of it, as opposed to just slapping something in there and it looks a bit raggedy and it's something that you don't feel proud of. But for all the things we're hearing over the last 20 years of being in Wellington, 16 years for homegrown Wellington, they love it. And they love it because it represents Wellington, which is fun, enjoyable, safe. And that's what we want to do with a festival. So I think with anybody doing events, you need to look at how you can marry into the city and have those common goals, as you do with your partners. Beams, uh, Jim Beam is, is really big on come as friends, leave as family. All right, So that ties in with our synergy. Wellington City is, is all about absolutely positively Wellington. So then how do we tie in with that? So I think it's all about everybody working together. And if you can work together again for that common goal, then everybody is a winner. So Andrew, that beautiful space on the Wellington waterfront, I'll ask you because it's topical, how safe is it in terms of, I mean, you have a wharf and you have a harbour and there have been some tragic happenings of late. And I know that you, apparently, I think I've talked to you about this in the past, that you actually mitigate some of these things, don't you? Yeah, we do. We have security that walks up and down the promenade continually throughout the event. What people don't realise, we actually have a, um, a rescue team on the water so we have, a, um, we have a boat out there uh, with two people with binoculars. They're constantly scouring the waterfront. And then we have two jet skis in the water uh, with surf lifesavers. They're able to respond to anybody going into the water. And we probably pull or assist anywhere from, from 8 to 10 people per year. And it's not assisting them out of the water. 99.9% of them, and I think all of them so far, have willingly jumped in. They just forget that they've got their shoes on and perhaps a pair of jeans and they try to make their way to the ladder, we just send a jet ski over to them, make sure they make it to the side safely, help them climb up, and, and make sure they're okay. And we've done that now for the last 10 to 12 years. Sometimes you might only get one person for the whole festival. Sometimes when it's a nice, hot, beautiful day, um, people are trying to cool down, they tend to jump in a little bit more regularly. Again, it's just taking that time to make sure that people are safe. We don't have to do it. It's not part of our resource consent or anything. But again, it's how do you want to be treated? If I jumped in and I couldn't make it to the side, what would I want? I'd want to make sure somebody was there. So that's what it's all about, is making sure that we're thinking about the what-ifs and what would somebody do or what could somebody do and how do we mitigate that. And in recent years, there's been a growing concern around environmental impact of music festivals, well-documented, particularly in terms of waste and carbon emissions. What steps is your festival taking to reduce its environmental overall footprint? And do you think the music industry as a whole needs to do more to address these concerns? On a personal level, I think, again, we're taking 20,000 people from all over the, the country and we're putting them into one space. So what would they normally be doing in their cities? They would still be having drinks, they would still be eating, they would still be doing that same stuff. So we have to really take what the cities do throughout the country and put that into one little town. So we have all our rubbish separation. We have our cans, we have our, um, our cups, we have our food, we have our general waste, and we have that the whole time. As that's coming out of the bags and, and into each one of the skip bins, that's being separated out. And they're checking that, making sure that's the case. And all we can do really is, is just remind people, you know, the signage is there, and just keep on top of it. So again, we've got 35 people on the ground doing that job, clearing bins, making sure that bins aren't overflowing. Again, if the site's clean, if the, the, the floor's clean and everything looks tidy, people are more in, intending to use a rubbish bin. 
Whereas if everything's a mess and there's stuff everywhere, you're more likely to throw it on the ground because it's just what everyone else has done and we seem to follow suit. But like sheep, really, we do what the other person does. So if you're keeping on top of it and you're keeping your site clean and tidy, that's a really good way for people then to mentally go, oh, maybe I shouldn't chuck this on the ground, the bin is only five metres away. And I think all of those things together help make sure that we're staying on top of that. Homegrown is exclusively a Kiwi lineup, and I just want your opinion, Andrew, on how you see the music scene today. International artists coming out of our ears right now and more available. Where is the New Zealand music scene, do you think, and how do you keep a New Zealand-specific music festival fresh and relevant when there is so much kind of international influence now on our music taste at a time when big corporates are buying up festivals? For example, TEG Laneway, Live Nation RMV as examples. In this climate, will homegrown stay independent and local? Uh, yeah, absolutely it will stay independent and local. New Zealand music is underestimated a lot and I think that over the years of us running the festival and, and watching different acts come through, we're really starting to showcase the talent that is in this country. And if you look at the likes of, of the Lords and the 660s, and, you know, Fat Freddy's, the ones that travel internationally and, and do swimmingly. But we've also got a bunch of other acts that all go international and they go to Europe and they travel. A lot of our rock bands head over to the, to the US and, and back over to Europe. So they're on the scene and they're going really, really well. And the amount of talent we have coming through, like every year, it's a, it's a real battle to put together that lineup. Not because we don't have enough talent, but because we've got too much. I could put another stage on tomorrow and fill that stage. The question is, where do we put it? So I think that New Zealand music has come in leaps and bounds. And I think that as Kiwis, the ability to be able to go to a day where you celebrate everything that is Kiwi, everything that is New Zealand music, no matter what your genre is. I mean, 50% of our audience is over the age of 30 which means that we're not just targeting the, the 18 to 25-year-olds. It means that that whole audience, everybody across New Zealand, is seeing a wide spectrum of music, whether it's from Catch a Fire to Dave Dobbin, from Stan Walker to Saatchi. The amount of people I see in there in their 50s and early 60s and even older that are there loving the music that they love is outstanding. And that goes to show that as Kiwis, we're passionate about what we can achieve as New Zealanders. So I think that this goes more than just New Zealand music. This is about celebrating being a Kiwi and celebrating who we are. And we do that through music. So it's, it's celebrating... New Zealand through music. Some of the stories emanating from Homegrown are legendary. And while we know that, just like the iconic song, um, you can't beat Wellington on a good day, the capital can be a bit messy, Andrew. Um, anyone who's flown into the place knows that, weather-wise. Any tales you can share about you know, in putting this whole thing together, probably operationally, the build, the pack-in or the pack-out or the day itself, without stating the obvious, wind is something of a factor? Yeah, wind is something of a factor. And we've had two specific years where it's played a, a very uh, very massive part. And one was back in 2014. Uh, we had a storm come through that, that blew 150, 160 k's on the Thursday before the event, and that was constant for, uh, for eight hours. I think we snapped four marquee legs. Uh, we snapped a marquee leg that was 21 metres, so we held that up with a forklift, blew out 19 walls on our 30 metre, and we had the, the, the crew on the ground just holding it together. Wellington City Council came through afterwards and a couple of the representatives and said that, look, we think the event's done. And I went and spoke to my, my uh, boss at the time, and realised that he had forgotten to get the insurance. So it was a matter then of digging deep and the team sort of realised what had happened and we rebuilt that festival. Everybody chipped in from the production guys to the, to the crew and we put the last peg in the ground as the gates opened and that was the entrance marquee. And the last peg was going in with a sledgehammer and the boys from uh, 
from the hire company were bashing those in as we opened the gates. And we ran that event that day. And then the other one would be this year. This year was probably the hardest event we've ever had to build. We had 120k winds come through constantly for the week leading up. We had buckets and buckets of rain. One of the days I did 21 hours. I was there at 3 o'clock in the morning holding a, uh, a grandstand banner together before it ripped. And a couple of the team were down there with me and we were just bashing away. And our goal was that we don't give up until we are either on the ground or the gates have opened and we haven't finished. And we kept fighting. And it was a long, long couple of uh, couple of days, but everybody buckled in together. We bought production and we had to shut the site twice uh, due to safety. Production ended up coming in from midnight. Uh, sound guys came in at four o'clock in the morning on event day. I mean, everybody chipped in together and worked hard. We, we made some phone calls. We bought hay in and mulch, got that bought in from the Y wrapper and from uh, Trentham area. And we had truckloads of that come in. It's the first time I've ever been walking around a site throwing out hay um, in the Wellington CBD, which is something I never thought I would do. But we did it. It soaked up enough moisture in the ground, and the event was able to go on. So again, a lot of those things wouldn't happen without every single person uh, that's on the ground, from the production guys to the security teams to the core crew. Everybody just, just bucking in and, and getting it done, and they're doing it for the, for the one reason, and that is this is New Zealand Music Day. And it's our day to shine, so that's what we keep on doing until we have to have to pull out. Is it true that one of the markers for the wind is seeing large wheelie bins flying through the air? Yes, on the year that I talked about with the with the large gusts, there's nothing like being passed by a wheelie bin when you're trying to make your way across a uh, across a paddock. And so yes, going across the park, I was passed by a wheelie bin end on end. And at that point, I kind of realised that uh, things were looking a bit grim. It was a bit tough day out. This year, we had a lot of uh, a lot of our portaloos were, were being bolted and strapped together because they were just uh, sliding all over the place, so there was a lot of work in, involved in holding it together. But again, I think uh, this year we put 410 tonnes of concrete into the event to, to hold it down. A lot of that's fence lines and, and, um, and ballast required. But yeah, we just went, uh, went above and beyond to make sure that the event could, could happen. And if, if you know the city and you know the place and you know what you're up for, then take the precautions and make sure you can hold yourself together. And first time I bought 410 tonnes in, it's normally about sort of 180. So we just had to double it to make sure that we could hold on for that period of time. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't realise that there was so much ballast involved. The council had a bit of a joke and the waterfront did as well. They were worried that we were actually going to start sinking the waterfront with that much weight on there. But uh, no, no, we, uh, we managed to get it through. Andrew, I want to briefly talk sales and marketing how did you do this year? I believe you sold out the day prior. And how do you determine your pricing strategy so you make the tickets you know, suitable for the current market conditions and profitable? Is it a fine line? Yeah, it's a real fine line. And again, I always uh, go back to erring on the side of what would I want as, as a as member of the audience, as a punter, or as somebody buying a ticket. And I'm a firm believer that you run with what your gut says. And for me, if I'm sitting there looking at a ticket price and I'm sitting with a team and it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel, it feels too expensive. Then again, I would rather bring that ticket price down and not make as much money and look at it and go, yep, that was fair and reasonable, than to look at it, put the price up uh, where it's a little bit too high and then not sell out or not be able to deliver what we've, we've said we would for our partners. So I think always erring on the side of caution, always making sure that what you're doing is fair and reasonable. And again, as we said to at the beginning, don't chase the money. Chase, the, chase what the event has to be. And yes, your, your profit and loss might go up and down a little bit, but it's a lot better to do that and make sure you've delivered something outstanding than to look at something and go, oh, if only I'd bought the price down by X, I could have sold out. So that sell out for us, you know, we've sold out 
every year bar two. And the two years we didn't sell out, one was after we had to postpone, and the other one we happened to be on the same night as M&M and Wellington. Now, M&M is quite a big bit of competition, and I think we missed the mark by about a 1,000 people. But we still got really close. So, you know, we'll take that as a win. And, um, hey, for all the other years that we've sold out, we're, we're absolutely proud. We're stoked. And, and, again, it means New Zealand music is strong. So if we can talk event operations, I believe you invested in the use of drones to provide a live stream of the event back to the command centre to ensure the smooth running of the event, all about safety of the patrons, and how successful was that, Andrew? Yeah, it's something we always wanted to do, but obviously technology wasn't around. Um, if you go into a stadium or into a standard venue, you have all those things at your fingertips. You've got you know, cameras, you've got screens, you've got everything you need to be able to do. So for us, we thought we'd go in with, to the drone side, and we had drones flying uh, above the entire time. These drones are, are they're amazing. The team we work with there uh, at New Zealand Drones are, are really, really, um, really great. They can pretty much zoom in and, and see what uh, message is on your phone. So for us, that's this is all about now for us for safety. And what we're looking at is we're, we're looking at how traffic is moving, how people are moving between stages. Is there any hold-ups at bars? And we're able to zoom right into our bar queues and look at how those queues are working. And it goes into the, it starts to go into the evening. We're able to flick over to thermal imaging, thermal imaging cameras up, and we can start to look at where there would potentially be um, spots or potential issues of, of places that aren't policed as much. And so we're able to fly those around the entire time and send our rapid teams in to go and check on people to make sure that they're safe. And so for us, the drones are, are amazing. It's able, I, I don't get to see the event, I get to sit inside four walls and rely on the information that comes back from, from our teams. And so to get eyes on and see how those things are flowing, it's outstanding. And obviously people can come and go from the festival, so for me to be able to radio through to my area manager at one end and say, hey, you've got about three and a half, four thousand people heading your way due to this band finishing. They're able to help prepare the security at the front gate. Bars are able to be notified. So we're able to prepare better and, and move people around to where they can best service the, the, the audience on the ground. I know that security plays a big part in your life. You own a separate security company, Andrew. Something I'm really interested in is, you know, we talk about personal protection, entry points, perimeter guards, bar guards, rapid response staff, barrier crews. When putting together a tailored security plan, how do you try to make sure that you get the right person for each task? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a really good question. So um, we've gone to a, a model where we bring in six or seven different companies. That's overseen by our well, my national uh, manager for, for Precision Life, but she works directly for Homegrown. So she takes her Precision hat on and she works directly for Homegrown. So she contracts all those different companies in, writes briefs for them, sits down and talks with them, goes through what each individual role is. And then for our particular teams, uh, she'll go through and go, Actually, that person has a fantastic personality. They would be suited for this role. Again, there's no point in having a guy that's six foot eight on the door of a VIP area because he's huge and he could be used elsewhere. Or there's no point in having a, a, an older lady um, near a barrier or near a choke point because it's going to be a really hard day for her. So put her somewhere that's best suited to her personality and she might be really friendly and nice and really got a good attention eye to detail. Um, so she works best in, a, in an artist area. So it's about making sure that, for me, I don't do that personally, but I have the absolute faith in the, in the person that I've put there to make sure that they are hand-picking those people and the relationship that she's built with each one of those companies and making sure that they are empowered to provide what they believe are the right people for each one of those positions has enabled us to make it more personalised and then make sure that those people coming in, again, are buying into the home growing ethos and, and 
the way that we want to do business, which is look after everybody properly. Being able to do that means that I'm able to go and brief each one of those individual security teams separately, have a chat with them, explain what I'm after as, a, as an owner of a company. And then, again, if, if you've got all of your staff, we've got 1,700 staff working on the day across the festival. If all of those 1,700 have got the same direction, which is looking after people, keeping them safe, making sure they're happy, then the flow-on effect starts to happen, and that's where people are happy and they're looked after by security by a recycling person, police, St. John. Everybody is then feeding into that same direction, which is make sure they're safe, have a good day. Yeah, we at H3, one of our values is that we want all of our people to be the best person they can be, you know, and to give people the tools and encouragement to, to be that person. And as Hamiltonians, we're proud of people who preside in our fine city and excel in their chosen craft, wherever that might be. So, Andrew, we're very proud of the fact that you're a Hamilton person doing great things, you know, outside of the city. So my question is, what does Hamilton have to do to entice Andrew to put on a large-scale event in our fair city? I think that um, one of the things that that Hamilton probably, as a city, is, is just behind the eight ball a little bit on is the ability to see that investment will bring in investment. A lot of times, and I think that there's a few uh, cities that I've, I've spoken to over the years um, for a variety of different other events that I've advised on, and it's the city doesn't see the value. So if, if they have to invest a portion of money to bring in $5 million into the city over that weekend, is that worth it? And a lot of people and a lot of councillors look at that as, no, no, we can't put our, our ratepayers' money towards that. But actually they can because putting some ratepayers' money towards bringing in a big event will be massive economic impact into the city. So the small amount they put in means that everybody, mums, dads, everyone can then feed back off that money go round that's back in the city again. And I think that once councils get that, and there is a few councils through the country that have really got it, they realise that if they invest a dollar, they're going to get $10 back. And to me, if somebody said, give me a dollar, I'll give you 10 I'd be all over it. Um, sounds like a great investment. So I think it's really about thinking outside the square and going, what is it going to take for me to get this in? And then going, how can we go about that? And I think that if that's explained well, if that's clear from, from councillors back to the city, that that's what they're doing it for. I think that locals will, will buy into that because, again, it's bringing revenue into their city, which is, again, what a council and city are trying to do. I want to take a step back now, Andrew, from asking you about the event organiser side of things and asking you a question from, Andrew, the punter perspective. Homegrown is a hugely enjoyed event here in New Zealand, but has there been a favourite event that you have attended as a, as a punter? And tell us why you thought it was a great event. I always look at things through different eyes now. So I don't get to go to an event anymore and, and sit back and enjoy it like I used to. You're always looking at, hey, that's a great idea or why did they do that? But there's a couple of things that I've, I've been to over the years that I have really stood out. The first one was I went and saw a Nickelback concert. And before you judge me on Nickelback, settle down. I went and had a look at it and their stage show and their production and the energy that they put into that stage blew me away. The way they put it together was just absolutely phenomenal and they had, they just had the buy-in of the crowd and the way they did that I was really impressed with and it, it showed me how production and then a buy-in from an artist can change a crowd. I've been to, I've been to U2, I've been to a bunch of others and 
you can see if they really have that attention to detail, the crowd's attitude changes. The other one I came to was uh, here at Claudelands actually, and it was the it was the horse. Uh, what was that called? Riding with the Stars. Now, I came and saw that, and uh, I brought my family along because my, my kids were pretty keen. And the thing that got me with that was we took a space and created something that shouldn't be there. And I love that. I love it when people do things that are out of outside the box. And it's very easy to look at an arena and go, we put concerts in there, we put ballets in there, we put stuff with music in there. But when you went there and looked at how many truckloads of sand had gone into it, how that actually built everything. There was all sorts of different things in there and the crowd loved it. And the place looked totally different. It didn't look like it was Globox Arena. It looked like you were somewhere different. And I think that when people can actually have the vision to create something outside of the box and then bring something like that show, which was very entertaining. I mean, I'm not that kind of person that would go to something like that normally, but I was entertained. And I was entertained in a space that I thought was amazing. So, yeah, that would be the, the two things that have stood out for me. And one final question, Andrew, that we like to ask all of our guests here on The Soundcheck. You choose to be busy and have a number of projects happening at any given time. So what is it that really drives you? What inspires you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Physically, what gets me out of bed in the morning is my kids. They're the ones that... Uh, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and ready to go first thing. I'm a little bit more of a, less of a morning person. But what gets me up and motivated every day is a couple of things. Firstly, um, my team. I love working with the people I work with. They, are, they We share so much together. We work through so much together. We go through great times and, and adverse times. And being there with them is, um, is something that really drives me. The other thing is, is always pushing yourself. So whenever you do something, don't look at that as, that's the best I can be. Look at how can I get better? How can I learn and get better again? And then the third thing for me is sharing that. Um, when I first started an event you know, many years ago, you'd walk past another promoter and, and you'd pretty much cross each other in the street and you'd swap sides of the road so you didn't have to see them because you didn't get on. Now I find myself much more sharing as much information as I can. There's, there's plenty of room for, for lots of events in this, in this country, but sharing that knowledge, working with different people and watching them grow. So I've, I've got the experience the ability or the, the ability to be able to share that, but I've also been greatly uh, had great joy over watching some of those events grow, watching some of those venues grow and develop, and sharing that and watching that. So what gets me up in the morning is doing something different, doing something that you're pushing yourself on, doing something that might take you two or three months to get through, but then you get there and you're like, wow, we did it. Yes, it was tough, but we did it. We did something that wasn't normal. So yeah, I think it's always pushing yourself and making sure you're having a bit of fun along the way and, and keeping that smile. Well, thanks Andrew for joining us today. It's been really great to hone in on One Homegrown and get your perspective on some really topical things in the festival sphere. If you're keen to hear more sound checks with event industry experts like Andrew, please subscribe to The Soundcheck on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.